So we mentioned already that uh, the, the series itself is, on, is a called Overflow, but it's, I'm, in the three weeks that I'm sharing to kick it off, I want to focus a lot on Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And you can see that there's a passage in there from actually uh, the first, uh, first portion of, of the Corinthians, the 1 Corinthians 16, and then there's also a portion from 2 Corinthians. Those were letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And I want to uh, actually have us look at uh, just a real quick map, just to get an idea. I, I know some of us don't always connect with maps, but it's good to remember that the things that the Bible talks about took place in real time and in real places that, that are there today. And we always talk about how so much of what's going on in the center of the world, in the Middle East, is just really right around that whole area of Jerusalem. But you can see where Jerusalem is. You can see where Corinth is there in Greece. That's where a lot of the early church began to flourish. You can see that there's a southern part of Greece, and there was a northern part of Greece. The green area represented the area of Macedonia, the southern piece, the orange area, Achaia. And those two areas, those two regions had different churches. And you'll recognize some of those names. Some of you are familiar with the New Testament. You see Corinth, Book of Corinthians that we're going to look at, Philippi, Philippians, Thessalonica, you know, Thessalonians. These are different books in the, in the scripture. What we know is, and it's important for us to remember, is that the church begins in Jerusalem. So the first believers in Jesus were Jewish, Hebrew, almost exclusively, unless they were someone who had converted to the, the, the way of, of the Jewish religion, um, they would have been exclusively Jewish. And that's how the church begins. But the church had a vision and led primarily by the Apostle Paul, they took the message of Jesus outside. Um, part of that was fueled by persecution, but they ended up taking the message of Jesus across the waters, and they found a stunning openness on the part of the Gentiles, particularly the Greeks, and they opened up their hearts, many of them, to Christ. And so one of the things that we we're also aware of at the time that we're, and we're gonna look at this letter, one of the things we know about is that as we come to this letter, about AD 55, Okay, that Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, was suffering greatly. Uh, they had been under an enormous amount of pressure. Uh, not only were they being persecuted because of their confession of Jesus, which was somewhat controversial, but they were also under, we know at this time, in the region of Judea, a kind of economic duress as well. There was a severe famine that had plunged them into economic freefall. And as a result, the the church in Jerusalem was in somewhat desperate straits. This is important as a setup. They were impoverished at this point. They were beleaguered. Uh, they were beaten down on all fronts. And the Apostle Paul recognizes that the situation is, even though it's really hard for the believers in Jerusalem, he feels has an opportunity in it. And so one of the things he does is he decides that it would be a great wonderful expression of unity and gratitude if the churches that were planted in that region would be willing to come back around. Because remember, it was Jerusalem who had sent and funded Paul to go and take this message of Jesus to plant these churches. And so Paul's thinking, if I can get them to then in turn respond now to the mother church, if you will, that birthed them if I can cause, get them to consider helping out the church in Jerusalem who's suffering so much, 
it would be not only a blessing for the church that really God used to start it all, but it would be a tremendous expression of unity. And so this is what fuels his desire. He, would, he basically does is he decides that he's going to go to these churches and, he, and he's going to start with a couple of them and he's going to ask them to contribute financially. And Corinth is a, was a prosperous church. It was a prosperous region, a lot like San Francisco in many ways. And the apostle feels strongly that um, he, if he can, he's going to try to get these churches and organize a relief fund. And he's going to, he's going to try to create enough resource for the church at Jerusalem to be blessed while they're suffering. And so that sets the table for what we're about to look at. So if you can kind of just start with that in mind, that the Apostle Paul's trying to raise a relief fund for the beleaguered church in Jerusalem, it'll set the table for what we're about to read. Now, at the, letter, at the end of his first letter to the Corinthian church, we call it the epistle, it's a letter, he reminds them again about this relief fund that he started. And what he does is he specifically asks them, as you're going to see, to lay aside a portion every Sunday in addition to their normal giving, their core giving, which would have been tithes, to their own local church. He, he wanted them to set aside an additional fund for a gift to be given to the church in Jerusalem. So let's look at this and let's read this together. It says in 1 Corinthians 16, Now regarding your question about the money that's being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure that I gave to the churches in Galatia. So again, he's writing to the church at Corinth. On the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money you have earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. No, when I come, you know, I'm going to write letters of recommendation for the messengers you choose to deliver your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems appropriate for me to go along, then they can travel with me. So basically what Paul's saying is, I need you guys to have a strategic, consistent method of setting aside resource, set the, set the money aside for the fund to be able to be taken to be given to the church in Jerusalem. That's the, you know, one of the things that makes this appeal, which occurs at the end, the last chapter of the first letter to the Corinthian church, the 16th chapter, it's a rather long letter. If you were to go back and read that letter and watch how it begins for the first 15 chapters, one of the most fascinating things you would note is that he spends about 15 chapters the, uh, the vast majority of that letter addressing different issues, concerns, some abuses. It's basically a very corrective letter. The tone is actually pretty tough. And so what's a pretty, in my mind, I go, man, this is classic Apostle Paul. You got to admire his chutzpah. Because after he spends around 15 chapters exhorting, rebuking, reproving, clarifying, and correcting, he turns around and essentially says, oh, and one more thing, uh, I want to talk to you about the offering, right? This is after, you've got to have some nerve to do that, right? You, I mean, he's like, he then says, oh, and there's this one more thing I wanted to bring up. And he introduces this idea of a fund. Now, fast forward to the second letter. Some time has passed. Paul has felt it's necessary to address a number of issues, one of which had to do with the fund that, and the giving issue. Because remember, he had talked to them about this fund, and he wants to sort of check in on it. How's it going? That brings us to the second letter, the eighth chapter. Now this is where we pick up. Follow with me, okay? Paul's returning to the to church at Corinth. He wants to see how they're doing with the commitment for the relief fund that he asked them to contribute to. Now he says, I want you to know 
Dear brothers, you can, again, you can see it here. I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God and his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. But they're also filled with an abundant joy, which is, there's, man, there's the connection, which has overflowed in rich generosity. Again, the churches of Macedonia were in the north. You went back to that little map there. They were in the north. And they were in themselves, the northerners, according to the Roman records, they had been under a tremendous amount of strain in their own right. Um, we know that the churches in Macedonia had been really affected by not only the Roman occupation as who, when they seized the gold and the silver mines, but also by a series of natural disasters, earthquakes and floods. So Paul, again, just to make it clear, he's writing to the Corinthians and then he's saying, oh, and by the way, you know the churches in the north of you, the ones, the ones that have been really under, under their own strain, um, I want to, again, I want to come back and talk to you about this relief fund because they actually, while they've been under this tremendous strain and they had, again, we, we underestimate sometimes how devastating uh, natural disasters could be in that, in that period. When natural disasters hit, there was no, there was no infrastructure, there was no relief for, for communities. It was utter disaster, a lot like how it is in some third world countries, but without any help coming from the outside. And so if, if, if you were part of a city or a, a community that was hit by a natural disaster, uh, it could be utterly devastating. And we know that the churches in, in Macedonia had not only been occupied and sort of taken advantage of economically by the Romans, but we, we, again, we know that they had experienced a lot of natural problems that had caused them to have their own suffering. They themselves we're not having it easy. Now, Paul talks about that. He says, look, that's why he says they have been tested by many troubles and they are very poor. You know that word in the Greek for very poor, for poor is? It's bathos. And it means rock bottom poverty. So Paul says, you know what? This church, your church is up north of you. You know, the ones that have had such a hard time themselves and, and they themselves are quite, you know, impoverished right now. He says, I want you to know something about them. I want you to know that they have been filled, even though they're having a very difficult time. They have this abundant joy that it just overflowed in them into rich generosity. And, and listen, listen, it had been so devastating that what they were going through, the churches in Macedonia, that Paul hadn't even asked them to give. It wasn't his intention. In fact, his initial intention was, you know, I'll, I'll pass the churches. When it comes to this relief fund for Jerusalem church, I'm going to pass the churches in the north up. They've had their own suffering. They've been under so many troubles of their own. I don't want, I don't want to necessarily even ask them to contribute. But if we look closely at that second verse again, we're going to see a phrase that seems incongruous. But it says that for in spite of their poverty, they are filled with abundant joy, again, which has overflowed with rich generosity. Something was going on in these believers. I want us to see this. Something that astonished and humbled even the apostle who had seen a lot. But he basically says that they were so filled 
in spite of their difficulty, they were so filled with God's joy and so profoundly impacted by the life of Christ that irrespective of their socioeconomic status, there overflowed in them a gift of joyful gratitude that caused them to give radically, look, even in the midst of their abject poverty. And Paul wants, wants the church in Corinth, who's relatively well off and prospering, to know, you know what? Do you understand what's going on up north with, with your brothers and sisters up there? Do you have any idea what they've been going through? And yet the quality that characterizes them. He says, for I can testify. Look at verse 3. He says, for I can tell. And you can tell he's smitten by them. All right. He's, it's almost like when Jesus at moments would marvel at someone's faith. There would be times where Jesus would say, you're amazing. He would marvel at someone's. I, I see Paul marveling at the Macedonian church who out of their poverty, out of the abundance of their poverty, has made a decision to give so beautifully to the church in Jerusalem who was suffering. It's just, it, it really, it gets Paul's heart. He says, for I can testify, look at this. I can, look at verse three. I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford. Uh, no, they didn't, they didn't even just stop there. They gave far more. And they did it of their own free will. In fact, he says, they begged us again and again. They actually begged us for the privilege of being able to share in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. Basically, what Paul is saying is, that as incredible as it might seem, your brothers and sisters up north begged us to let them contribute. They did not want to be left out. They did not want their poverty to be a reason for leaving them out of what they saw as a blessing. In fact, he says, not only did they give what little they, they could afford and what they had, he says, but listen, they gave more. Verse 5, look at that. They even did more than we had hoped for their first action. You know why they did it, he says? I'm going to tell you why they did it. He says, they gave more than we could have even hoped for because their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. Honestly, they exceeded our expectations. You know why? Because long before they gave their resources, they had already given them to God. He had their heart. These are people, Paul says, who live under the sway of King Jesus. And so they rallied behind us and what we were trying to do for the church in Jerusalem. That's what he's telling the church at Corinth. I want you to know about your brothers and sisters up there. So he says, verse 6, we've urged Titus. Titus was a trusted member of Paul's team who had delivered Paul's first letter and brought the issue to their attention. We've urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. That is, we want you to follow through on the good intention that you said you would do. Paul Paul had been told that the Corinthians, after his appeal in the first letter at the end, had said, yeah, we'll do that. But they, they, they were not really following through. And so Paul says, look, I want you to follow through on the thing that you committed yourself to. Look, and then he says this, check it out. He says, since you excel in so many ways, I mean, you're an amazing church. You excel in your faith, you have gifted speakers, you have knowledge, you have enthusiasm, and you have love from, from us, I want you also to excel in this gracious act of giving. You're an amazing and gifted church. You excel in so many things. You know what? Excellence rests over you. Would you be excellent in your giving as well? Be generous. And that's a word for some of us. Paul says, I'm not commanding you to do this. Look. But I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of other churches. I'm not commanding you to, to give this money. 
but I'm asking you. Yeah, and I am applying some pressure to you. Again, it's not a legal thing. I'm not trying to guilt you into this, but I am encouraging you to do what others, less prosperous, have already done. I want to give you the opportunity to demonstrate the reality of your love that I believe you have for Christ. So that's the text. That's the passage. That's what was going on. I really feel like there's some things around this that, that, that we can wrestle with that are good for us. And I've been praying for this. And again, just thinking about the kind of setup that we, we just looked at, how Paul is making this appeal to the church at Corinth, this group of believers who were well off, to help out the church in Jerusalem who were suffering, and how he uses the example of the churches in the north to really motivate Corinth to respond because they seem to be reluctant. And here's some things about generosity and overflowing that I want to at least have us look at. And one of the things is this, and we'll just put this up, is that in lean and difficult times, I really do believe this. One of the lessons we're being told here is if we can focus on Christ, it is possible to have a sustainable joy that allows us to endure in kindness and generosity. I don't, this is, like the Macedonian church, who despite their many troubles and their own problems, abounded in joy, they abounded in joy that launched them into generosity. How good is that? I, and this reminded me that it, and it's good for all of us to remember this, that it is possible even when we're under steady duress, and I don't know, maybe some of us are doing great. That's wonderful. Maybe your burden is light. That's so beautiful. But if some of us have come in with things that are weighing on us, if we have things inside of our own hearts sometimes that we're struggling with, areas of our life that are very challenging for us, places where we feel tremendous pressure, some of us are going to walk back in on Monday and we're going to have a heavy load to carry. We're going to have to deal with stuff at our work. Some of us are have not only that to deal with, but we have things going on in our family, our extended family, that is deeply troubling for us, or hard for us. We, 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 we may have our own internal struggles, which sometimes are even more difficult to bear, whether it's at an emotional level, a mental level, where we feel we may be at a breaking point or close to it, and our nerves are frayed. In these places, one of the things we're reminded of is that when we're under steady duress, and great difficulty, it is possible, listen, that we can be in that place of great difficulty. Well, the Macedonian example teaches us we can be in that great difficulty and yet not be defined by it. In fact, I think with God's grace, it is possible to flourish in ways that are only possible with adversity. And in fact, Lord willing, in the new year, which is still a few months away, but it is truly deeply planted in my heart to spend the opening months talking about how we can grow through adversity, how to do it from a biblical approach. How can we grow through hard things? How can we abound in difficult places? But one of the things that we're told here is that in Christ, listen, 
It is, possible, it is possible to abound even in our adversity. And that is a principle that the Macedonians teach us. Secondly, their example is a reminder to resist allowing fear, loved ones, to hinder our generosity. Fear can cripple our responsive capacities. Instead of giving, instead of giving we give in to our fears. Instead of giving, we give in to our fears. And sometimes I think of a couple of fears that, that seem to dominate, that can cut off our capacity to be a generous people and a committed people to the Lord. And that has sometimes to do with the fear of not having enough, which is the spirit of poverty. That's the true spirit of poverty. The true spirit of poverty is not having nothing. It's the fear of having nothing. That's why people who are extraordinarily wealthy can be gripped by the fear and the spirit of poverty. It is not the exclusive domain of those who have nothing. One of the things that we're also sometimes attacked by is our fear of losing what we have. And so sometimes we, we are so afraid that we, we tighten things up. But the, both of these fears attack our sense of, of um, security and identity. So the natural tendency is to pull back to conserve, to avoid being generous, and to focus mainly on ourselves. And I'm not suggesting that there isn't a time when, in our lives when we maybe have to pull back and simplify. And there are times where God will say, look, life has become too complex, and um, you're, you're overextended, and you have to live within your means. Um, that the wisdom is adjusting, and, t- and there's a time for that. There's a time where... Um, we need to even sometimes make adjustments in our generosity because we're being overextended. Hopefully that's only temporary. One of the blessings of prospering is that it allows us to even be more generous. And yet it's important to stay open to the Lord, you guys, because one of the things I want to suggest, just hear my heart, is that God really does want us to have a spirit of responsiveness. And I'm talking right now mainly to those who've clearly made it in your heart, a commitment to follow Jesus. I certainly, the letters were written to people who were followers of Jesus. And I would never expect anyone who wasn't there yet to sort of think about living this way necessarily. But one of the things I'm reminded of is that God really does want us to be responsive in the area that relates to our giving and our giving patterns. And, um, you know, I'm, and in this case, Paul wasn't really talking about their core giving commitments. He was talking about their discretionary giving. Just please hear the difference. The the core giving commitment that a believer has to their own church is what we call the tithe. A tithe has to do with the giving of 10%. The idea that God can do more with with 90 that is really his anyway than we can do with 100. And what ends up happening is that, and it's something that I, I'm just going to tell you, I, I mean, there's not uniform agreement on this, but I found it to be very true. I was taught early as a follower of the Lord that whether I made $10,000 or 10 cents, that as for me and my house, we were going to give, as Jesus commanded us in Matthew 23, 23, a tenth of that to his house. And that's what I've done since I had a paper wrap. My grandfather pulled me aside and he said, listen, you honor the Lord with a tithe. It'll affect your entire life, the way you process your life with God. And I have done that. I've tried to teach my family to do that. All my life, I've tried to live that way to honor God. And I remember when I was, I remember when um, I was in training 
after my grandfather had passed away, I, I was looking for different, we, had no, we were not a part of a denomination. And um, I was so young, I was 25 years old, with the responsibility of, of leading the church, albeit it was much smaller, but I still felt very overwhelmed and I had lost my father figure, my father in the faith. And I, he had taught me how to love God, he had taught me basic things, but didn't really have anywhere else to really go, not a lot. And I, I attached myself to a, another pastor from afar uh, who was from a denomination. His name was Jack Hayford. And he's still alive, actually. He's in his 80s now. This is an amazing man who modeled responsiveness to the Lord. And I, he, always, he always astonished me with his teachings. And through my 30s and 40s, I, I had a chance to sit under him with, a, a large, with other groups of pastors, and, and I gleaned a lot from him. I say all that because ultimately he, he and a team started a seminary, King's Seminary, and he's the chancellor of that now. That's where I actually ended up doing my doctorate work. And uh, in that, in that, during that time, though, one of the things I remembered about was how he kept challenging all of us to be responsive to the Lord. He says, sometimes it's going to seem silly, and he wasn't a crazy man. But, he, said, but he, he always amazed me at his willingness to be somewhat undignified if it meant responding to the Lord. And he was a big believer in, in tithing, and he talked about the value of it. And in his book, he, he writes about something. He's called his, the book that he, he talks about this particular, what I'm about to read and share with you, which I think is tender and beautiful. You're going to see it in a second. The book is called The Key to Everything. The Key to Everything by Jack Hayford. If any of you decide you want to read that, it's, it's a pretty good book. Uh, but this is what he wrote. Just stay with me because, I'm, again, I'm, I'm just talking about core giving right here. Just hear me out. This is what Hayford wrote. He goes, as I'm seated, and, and by the way, what he's about to share, to me, also, if anyone who's a parent or ever will be a parent or a grandparent, the ability to have parents who would do this for their children or grandchildren, that what, what happened to him and affected a whole bunch of other people, affected someone like me, affected all those who I ultimately get the chance to serve. Think about it, the effect that parents can have on a child. He says, as I'm seated, my dad, he's talking about when he was a boy. He had, believing, he had a believing mom and dad. And he says, I was, they called me in and they had me sit down. And he says that um, when I was just a boy, he says, my dad brought out a small handful of change. And he said, and Hayford writes in his book, young Jack Hayford himself, man of the world, is about to receive two things. One, his first allowance, and two, his first lesson in money management. He says, and, I can, and he's writing as an older man, looking back down the corridor of time to when he was a boy sitting there, just a little guy with his mom and dad. And they walk in and he says, I can remember it so well, it's vivid. He goes, it was, he says, and it would affect me for the years to come. To earn my allowance, certain daily chores and weekly responsibilities around the house frame my agenda. But this memorable moment was payday number one. And daddy sat beside me, that's what he calls him, with mama across the table because of the lesson he was ready to teach. Imagine having a father like this. 
And instead of giving me a dime, which was going to be my first allowance, he put a nickel on the table and five pennies right in front of me. He goes, I can remember it so clearly. And he goes, it's hard to describe the good feeling I remember. And he says, nothing was heavy, nothing was oppressive, nothing was suffocatingly religious about what followed. The lesson was clear and concise as my dad taught me what the Bible says about tithing. And I learned that day, and he, he wrote three things, that, that, the tithe, that the tithe means a tenth, based on Genesis 28, 22. That the Lord claims the tithe as his, Leviticus 27, 30. That obedience, he says, in, in the tithing carries a promise, a great promise, Math, Malachi 3.10. Anyway, he talked about that. He says, then, with the health, after my dad taught me and referred to these scriptures, he says, then with a healthy attitude of obedience and joy that characterized the way my folks talked about God. Do you see the effect about the way we talk about the Lord the little ones has? Daddy said, now, son, from what I've just shown you, what part of the 10 cents is the Lord's? And Jack said, I took the penny and I answered, and just, this is what he says, this is the Lord's. And my dad said, that's right, son. Now, what do you want to do with it? He says, well, I can give it when it's offering time in Sunday school. And they smiled their approval. And Mama added, Jack, listen, Jack, this isn't just for you today. This is for always. So you remember that. This is the way we live as a family. And we want you to learn to live that way too, okay? I said, okay, Mama. And then Jack Hayford, much older man, says, and you know what? I have and I do. And then he went on to say this, as a result of that parental teaching and provable evidence of God's blessing on this practice of obedience to his word, there's not a dime or dollar I have not received in my life that I haven't tithed on. He says, years later, but then he said, flip forward. He said, years later, something happened. I was a boy when I was taught it. I did it all, all as I was growing up, he says, but then I became, there was something happened. I, my wife and I, Anna, we were married. And we went from being students all of a sudden, we started making some more money. And he goes, I still remember the day when he says, we got an additional check, a Christmas bonus. He says, and so what happened was that bonus combined with our normal salary, all of a sudden, he says, and again, they're running a different period, but he says, all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, he says, as I was writing, and I know not everybody writes checks these days, I get that. But he says, for the first time in my life, I actually started to write a three-figure check. For him, that was a step. He had never done it before. He never had that much money before. He says, I can still remember the day when I sat at the table with Anna. And this is what he says. He goes, he says, something choked inside of me. As I prepared to write that check, it suddenly seemed like a large amount of money. And I winced, feeling guilty for the possessiveness. I mean, this is the kind of man he is. I mean, the guy drives deep inside his heart. <sighs> he says, for the possessiveness that was seeking a place in my heart. And he said, but it didn't survive for long. Because almost as soon as that thought tempted me, the Lord spoke to me. And he said, this is what he said in my heart. Child, 
it's still only a penny on every dime. And I laugh both to myself, and I laugh both to and at myself, amen, Lord, the huge tithe check isn't any more than the first penny on my first allowance. And it's the context of incidents like these, he would share candidly, that I have learned a pattern of tithing that has brought a blessing to my whole life. I want to share this truth freely, boldly. And for that reason, I don't believe for one minute that tithing buys God's blessing. It's not like I'm buying your blessing, Lord. But I do believe it opens a door, or better, a window of release for God to bless continually and mightily. And so what we're talking about here, and again, I... I, was I have been amazed and I have watched with amazement this man address his own heart. And whenever he found himself getting to that place where he was worried he was going to close himself down from what God was prompting him to do, he would rally to it, go at it. And that was always inspiring to me. Now, the church at Macedonia, what they were being asked to do, Paul already knew they gave faithfully. That was what their custom was. He was asking them to think about could they give more? And he didn't even want them to give more because he thought, you don't even have enough money to give. So why would I want you to do that? But they insisted because, and this is going to be where I'm going to close this up with, it, they, they insisted because there was something about them, this, these group of believers that lived their life big for God. And here's that, so this is the final thing I want to leave with this, is that God wants us to live our life big. And just give me a moment here to overflow in generosity. And I'm talking about generosity of all kinds. He wants us to be givers and encouragers, not clutchers and discouragers. He wants, he wants us to be more generous in every way with our praise, with our love, with our kindness, with our resources. How do we live big? when circumstances seem so confining? How do we do it? How do we live big when our relationships are faltering and are disappointing? How do we live big when times are lean and things are not going as we had hoped? How do we live big like that? What are we talking about? What I'm saying is within the framework of confinement, we can choose to do what the Macedonian church did. That is, we seek to live in the abundance of his joy, live in his word, immerse ourselves in his promise, bring our attitudes into alignment with our hope. That's what I'm talking about. We decide he provides. The point is we can live big in the small places of life. That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to say. As I look at the Macedonians, just hear my heart. I look at the Macedonian example and they were living big in a place where everything was so tight. And if, if we decide he will provide the grace we need to prevail and flourish, I'm gonna leave you with this last verse in Luke 6.38, it says this, give, Jesus said this, give and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. That's what the words of Jesus taught us. And then they can put that verse up, Luke 6.38, you can see it. For yourself. What a promise that is. Do you see it? What we give comes back around. Let's live big for God. Let's, I'm not, and I'm not just talking about finances. I'm not. I'm talking about let's not settle for a small, tight faith 
that's cautious and careful and measured and reluctant to risk. Let's be, let's be adventurous followers of Jesus. Come on, let's set the sail and only one life to live. The time is now. Let's lay up treasure in heaven. Send it ahead. Let's live like we talked about last week, that we actually believe what we believe. And we're going to doubt our doubts and we're going to believe our beliefs. We're going to live like that. That means I can be, I can flourish anywhere. God wants us to live big in any place. And I hope we hear that. Let's live what we believe. Let's let what we believe inform our actions and attitudes. That's what we're saying. Inform my actions, Lord. Inform my attitudes. Don't let the circumstances dictate my actions and my attitudes. Don't. No. 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 I will not. I will not be defined by those things. I am a follower of Jesus. The abundance of the joy in my life that overflows into generosity. That's how we live big. The time is now. The day is short. The opportunity will not always be there to honor God. We will not always have the opportunity to honor God and bless people of our life is limited. Listen to me. The time to live what we believe is now. Now. And when we do it, the joy of the Lord fills our hearts and our lives. And it flows out. And other people are affected by it. Wherever we are, let's choose to live big for God. Let's be an adventurer in our faith. Let's not be defined by things that we don't like and let that just dictate our attitudes and our demeanor. Forget that. God's given us a joy in our heart that goes beyond circumstances. That's what Paul said the Macedonian church had. Do you see their joy? He says, it's not because they have a bunch, because they don't. There's something inside of them that is overflowing into generosity. Lord, may you, may you let that vision be in us as well. I'm gonna go ahead and pray. I'm gonna ask this blessing over, over this word. And I say, Lord Jesus, I thank you for your amazing generosity towards us. For you gave everything. You, you emptied it all. You overflowed for us. You, your blood flowed out for us. And for those of us who believe and receive you, there's an example, there's a model. And I just really pray against the things that would lock us up, the things that would shrink us down, steal our joy. God, help us to see that when we invite you in and claim your promises and live as a people of hope and believe what we say we believe, that it, it's going to affect how we manage our life. It's going to affect how we approach our life. It's going to affect how we walk through our life. And so I just ask that you would help us to let our light shine. Let us be examples of you and radiate your goodness and that people may see your good works. It doesn't matter whether we abound. Great. If we abound, then we bless. If, we, if we're having it hard and we're abased, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God, even a greater opportunity to honor you and to demonstrate the reality of our faith. And the power that comes out of that is a power unlike anything else. So have your way with us, Lord. This is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, God.